Thought Leadership from PwC. As there is concern that Senator Manchin or Senator Sinema won't go as high as the you know other Democrats want to go on raising corporate individual rates, there has become a renewed effort to breathe life into an administration proposal to impose a tax based on book income as opposed to taxable income. Covering what CFOs and controllers want to know about the latest goings on in tax policy, this is a special episode of PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. There is no shortage of political intrigue in current weeks, and there's truly so much going on in Washington that for this podcast, we sometimes race to keep up with developments, even in the short window between when we record an episode and when we release it. But with the rapid pace of change in the landscape, we know that means now more than ever, our listeners want an interpreter to make sense of it all. You may remember that just three weeks ago, we had Roz Brooks, PwC's U.S. public policy leader based in Washington, D.C., on the show to cover all of legislative developments. This week, we're taking a deeper dive specifically on the tax-related changes that may be coming on the horizon And there's perhaps no better guide to walk us through this than someone who devotes most, well, actually probably almost all, of his waking minutes to piecing together the mosaic that's tax policy developments. Joining us this week is previous guest and PwC's co-leader of our Washington National Tax Services, Rohit Kumar. Rohit's episodes tend to fly off the shelf, so you're going to want to sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, or in my case, green tea, and settle in for updates on domestic and international taxation with a brief discussion of the infrastructure bill thrown in for good measure. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. So Rohit, so nice to have you back on the show and definitely an interesting time to have you back with so much going on in Washington. So Level set for our listeners. We're recording this on October 12th. And so I think the themes we talk about today will continue into the future, although maybe some of the details will change because I know things are moving fast. Uh, But maybe to start things off, Rohit, what's the lay of the land? So the lay of the land as we sit here on October 12th is the House of Representatives is actually coming back today to um, vote on the temporary debt limit extension that the Senate finally cleared um, last week. This has been described as an extension to December 3rd, but that date is entirely made up. The December 3rd is the date that the government funding runs out. So the Congress has to do something before December 3rd on government funding. Debt limit is not really lent, does not lend itself to a date certain this far in advance. They think that gets them to at some point in December, but having um, been through several debt limit exercises over the course of my professional life, I will tell you uh, of sort of a the standard margin for error for debt limit is like anywhere from two to four weeks. So it could be mid-December, it could be early January, kind of remains to be seen. So the House is going to kind of process that today, and they they should be able to get that across the finish line. And then all eyes kind of turn back to this tax and spend reconciliation bill that has become, you know, the kind of the star of the show uh, for Q4 of 2021. Well, and that's clearly why we have you here today, or at least, you know, one of the main reasons. So what do you expect to see then uh, happening over the next, say, four to six weeks? 
so we had to break it up into like chunks of like the next couple of weeks, like between now and the end of the month, and then kind of between let's call it November one and Thanksgiving. So between now and the end of the month, there will be an effort to establish what we're kind of colloquially referring to as a framework agreement. Framework agreement is a, a term that is used broadly to describe can the majority get all Democrats, progressives, moderates, and everyone in between um, to agree on a top line spending number. So gross amount of spending is at $1.5 trillion, $2 trillion, something north of two. And, you know, how are we going to pay for that? Like, is that going to be fully paid for by tax increases? Is it going to be partially paid for by tax increases, some other spending reductions? Might there be some deficit financing as a part of the equation? So these are kind of big top line numbers with some sense of the policy that fits underneath. And the goal is to get that done by the end of this month. And the reason I say the end of this month is not because anything magical happens with respect to reconciliation at the end of the month. Indeed, nothing magical happens at the end of the month other than Halloween for kids that are trick-or-treating. But we do have a surface transportation program, highways, roads, bridges, things like that. Um, The authorization for that spending does expire at the end of the month. And so listeners may recall there was this big to-do at the end of September about a highway bill, the big infrastructure bill, the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. Would the House be able to pass that? Turns out they couldn't because they didn't have this framework agreement that they're searching for on the reconciliation bill. And so the Speaker's goal is to get this framework agreement by the end of the month, which would then, in theory, unlock the progressive votes necessary to pass the big infrastructure bill, send that to the president's desk. It is probably not lost on any of the listeners that the president's political approval ratings are as low as they've been since he was elected. Uh, The administration needs a domestic political victory in the worst way possible right now. And so they are really kind of looking at this infrastructure uh, bill as a sort of, you know, interim political victory that will then hopefully um, enough work will have been done on the reconciliation bill to create that political victory, but also put the reconciliation bill on some sort of path to conclusion. And then, so Rohit, the timeline, your expectation of the timeline, understanding things can change, would be that the infrastructure bill comes first and then this reconciliation bill? Yes. Is there a scenario where they can't get their act together for the infrastructure bill, but we still move, you know, we still see them moving forward with the reconciliation bill? No, there will not be the votes for the larger reconciliation bill if they don't do the infrastructure bill. So we have a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem where you've got moderates saying, we want the infrastructure bill, we want it now. And that is our price of entry for having this conversation about the broader reconciliation bill. And you've got progressives saying the exact opposite. No, no, the reconciliation bill has to be fully buttoned up before we'll vote for the infrastructure bill. So, you know, taking it face value, there is no overlap in the Venn diagram between progressives and moderates. My experience here would suggest that at the end of the day, the progressives will yield to the moderates. Um, They're already yielding on the size of the reconciliation bill. They will inevitably yield on the timing and pacing of the bill. What they really want, and I think they know this, what they really want is a higher degree of assurance that that second bill will both happen and will happen in a way that they are broadly speaking comfortable with. And that's what that framework document is supposed to check two boxes. One, this next bill will happen and it will happen and it will look roughly like this, roughly this amount of spending with roughly these tax increases. And you can take it, you know, as an article of faith that Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer and the president will deliver for you um, on the second bill. And then I think the other feature is unless there's a dramatic um, reversal of the president's approval ratings, he starts, you know, climbing up from where he is right now, there will be inordinate pressure on progressive Democrats 
by the White House to say, hey, look, um, our ability to deliver on the second bill is to some degree tied to our political standing. And if we don't do something to improve our political standing, then we really put in jeopardy the ability to pass that bill, that second bill at all at one and a half to any number of trillions of dollars might be zero trillion dollars because that bill doesn't happen if the president doesn't have sufficient political capital to get it across the finish line. And Rohit, you may have said this, but I wasn't focused on it. The framework agreement then is among the Democrats. Yes. It's not, this is not bipartisan. No, no. This is just the Democrats themselves agreeing what they want to do. That's right. There will be nothing bipartisan about the reconciliation bill. The Republicans are standing on the sidelines, have been locked out of the room, depends on your perspective. Um, and they are just throwing, throwing sand in the gears, you know, attacking it, assaulting it, decrying it, you know, leveraging the concern about inflation, leveraging the concern about, you know, size of government, you know, they, and they have some tools at their disposal, like the March COVID bill, the American Rescue Plan. I mean, hindsight, and this was their Republican criticism at the time, overshot the mark. You know, the jobless benefits may have been a little bit too generous. We're dissuading people from returning to the workforce, put a lot of money into the system, but we hadn't worked out our supply chain issues, more dollars, change, chasing fewer goods. Inflation is the natural result. And that is starting to become a point of some concern for the administration. And you notice this just in their rhetoric. In the beginning, they were like, oh, this is temporary. Never mind. And now they are like, no, no, we, this will be more than temporary. We've got it under control. This is not a durable problem, and it's no reason to stop what we're doing now. But that message is not landing on all fours. And you've got some moderate Democrats who are citing inflation and inflationary concerns as a basis for either wanting the bill to be smaller or, in some cases, wanting to wait until you know maybe 2022 to see how much of this is really necessary. Now, I don't think they're going to wait till 2022, but the bill is definitely going to get smaller. All right. So let's, for purposes of this discussion, say we get through the infrastructure bill. So they've reached the framework. There is an infrastructure bill. So now what happens in the reconciliation bill? What do you and your crystal ball see happening from a tax perspective? So I think um, there are sort of two variables here that folks need to be paying attention to. One is the gross amount of spending, right? What does that framework document say about what is the total amount of spending? That will give us some information about the tax increases that will accompany it. But what I think is often lost in the discussion, and it's understandably lost in the discussion because this is something that you only know if you pay a lot of attention to the Senate rules, which is almost nobody other than me. Um, but the rules, the way that they've written this reconciliation instruction for the House and Senate majority, the tax committees, the Ways and Means Committee in the House and the Finance Committee in the Senate, they have to pay for all of their own spending. So irrespective of what the gross spending number is, the Finance Committee, the Tax Committee, and the Senate in particular, and the Senate is where these rules really bite, um, the Finance Committee has to pay for all of its own spending. So in the ordinary course, you might think, well, for every dollar less of spending overall, there'll be a dollar less of tax increases that are needed to service that spending. But in fact, what you really need to pay attention to is how much is the spending by the tax committees coming down? And a lot of the spending is in the tax committee's jurisdiction. Some of it is actual spending, like the paid family leave program, and some of it is spending through the tax code, like you know energy incentives, green energy incentives, electric vehicle incentives, things like that, um, family preferences, child tax credit, earning them tax credit, things like that. And those numbers may not come down as much um, as the other non-tax committee spending is reduced. So if you think the opening bid was $3.5 trillion dollars. And that the final bidding will be something, let's call it one and a half, because I'm going to take Senator Joe Manchin at his word that that's his top line number. 
So, you know, oh, that's $2 trillion less spending. That's $2 trillion less tax increases. Not exactly, because a lot of that $2 trillion of spending that's being removed is not being removed from the tax committee's jurisdiction. It's coming out of other committees. And so what we really need to know is how much of the freight is the tax committee carrying? Because that will tell us how much revenue they have to raise. And my crystal ball suggests that that is probably going to be still around a trillion dollars. Um, or let me put it this way. There will be a trillion dollars of desired spending that I think will be really core consensus spending um, that falls within the tax committee's jurisdiction. I'm a little bit less certain as we sit here today, whether there are 50 votes in the Senate for a trillion dollars of tax increases. I've talked about Senator Joe Manchin, um, vocally moderate Democrat from West Virginia, and he's been you know very much out in the press talking about what he will or won't agree to. But there was another senator who was increasingly becoming the focus of a lot of attention, uh, Senator Kirsten Sinema from the state of Arizona. She has been noticeably quiet about what she would agree to and what she would support, both on the spending side and more importantly, on the revenue side. But I will tell you from somewhat less public conversations, it looks like she is drawing a pretty hard line on some of these tax increases. And it's been reported in the press that she has told the White House and the majority leader in the Senate that she's not for any individual or corporate tax increases. Now, look, I mean, that might be her position today, and and maybe that position will hold. I will tell you this. If there are no individual or corporate tax increases, there is almost no way to get to a trillion dollars of revenue in a way that, you know, unite Democrats across the political spectrum. That's the other variable here is, you know, yeah, we can say it's one and a half trillion dollars because that's what Joe Manchin says, and he would easily find you a trillion and a half of tax increases that he could support. But he might be only the 49th vote in the Senate. He, Senator Sinema, I think, is increasingly looking to me like the 50th vote. And that 50th vote, she has not been very public about what she would support on the revenue raising side of the equation. And so, you know, that's why she's getting a lot of um, wanted and perhaps unwanted attention in the moment, because I think people are realizing, oh, she might be the fulcrum um, in this exercise. So Rohit, let me rewind to the point you made about the spending and the fact that it's only the tax committee spending that has to be funded. So the examples you gave, like the energy tax credits, okay, those are very clear. They're in the tax code. Now, is it only spending, spending, I'll use quote air quotes, through the tax code that's in their jurisdiction or where are those boundaries drawn? No, there are other, so the finance committee has jurisdiction over the Medicare program for example. So if you want to expand benefits in Medicare, the dental, you know, and hearing and things like that, that comes out of the finance committee's jurisdiction as well. Now, it has been long thought, um, and I think this is basically true, that any healthcare spending that is done as a part of this exercise will be paid for with health spending offsets. So that, you know, if, if we're going to do a $300 billion, I'm making this number up, but if we're going to do like a $300 billion expansion of the Medicare program, that would be paid for by other Medicare savings. You know, uh, prescription drug negotiations has been the object of a lot of attention, also the object of a lot of disagreement amongst um, House and Senate Democrats. So some of this tax committee spending will be health care, and that is probably going to be paid for by health policy changes. So I think it is the tax relief, the green energy, family credits, um, electric vehicle credits, things like that. Those are the things that primarily are going to be driving the revenue increases to pay for that aspect of the tax committee's um, jurisdiction. Now, what I explained to you earlier is a function of the rules. So under the rules, the finance committee has to pay for all of its spending. The Ways and Means Committee, the Tax Committee in the House 
has to pay for all spending. And they could, in theory, as a matter of rule, deficit finance the non-tax committee spending up to a certain amount, up to about another $1.75 trillion on top of whatever the tax committees are doing. That's a rules-based analysis. But there's obviously a political analysis here, which is, would you have the votes for you know, $500 billion, a trillion dollars of deficit spending? Um, so let's just hypothesize that the tax committees are paying for their own work, whatever that is. I'm going to say that's a trillion dollars. And that's, that's a guess, but it's a reasonable guess. You know, Might there be another $500, $800 billion of spending that is not paid for? Well, the rule would allow for that. But it's not clear to me that you would have 50 votes in the Senate or 217 in the House for you know, that amount of deficit spending. So this is what that framework, we're going back to that framework document. This framework document is in theory would suss these things out. Like how much are we going to spend in total? How much are we going to raise taxes? How much other spending reduction, maybe you know, Medicare savings through prescription drug negotiations are we going to achieve? And if there is a delta left, is that deficit financed? And do we have the votes for that? So that that these are the various pieces that the majority has to try to figure out and big picture, they're trying to figure that out in the next, let's call it 18 days. That's a lot of big decisions in a very short period of time. So Rohit, again, to clarify something, when you talk about spending, you also then need to consider whatever gets passed in the infrastructure bill. That's part of all of these numbers in terms of... No, that actually is being treated separately right now. Well, it's being treated separately. So but that is sort of a... So the, the, yes, it's, it's complicated. At the end of the day, is it really Oh, separate? absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It all shows up on the balance sheet one way or the other. You, you can think of it as uh, in its own political silo, but, but in the real world, it's all the same. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. That that was that was my only question. Yes. So how about on the tax sort of funding side, how does tax enforcement fit in? This question I asked Roz as well, because it's something I keep reading that if there's more tax enforcement, maybe we need to raise taxes so much. Or is that kind of rounding in the big picture of things? No, no, it's real money. Um, so there are two components to tax enforcement. One is just literally giving more money to the IRS. And then the other is um, changing the reporting requirements. And the piece that's gotten the most attention is that banks and financial institutions would report, report on gross uh, inflows and outflows north of $600. And they would report that to the IRS. And then the theory on the information reporting is, um, let's say I, Rohit Kumar, had gross flows, inflows and outflows of you know seven or $800,000, but I reported only $40,000 of income. Now, just because I had flows that were 10x that, doesn't mean that I had income 10x that, but if your flows are wildly disproportionate to the amount of income reported, it's the sort of thing that the IRS might say, huh, hey, let's take an extra hard look at that Rohit Kumar return because there's something that just doesn't smell right here. And moreover, if I, Rohit Kumar, know that this information reporting is happening in the background, maybe I do a more accurate job of reporting my income ab initio. So this is to try to get at the sort of persistent underreporting of income that you know exists, right? And it exists especially in the cash economy, um, you know, where you're not a W two wage earner and you're, you don't have, you know, and, and there's obviously information reporting that goes along with that. So that's the information reporting side, and that has been thought to raise between two and three hundred billion dollars of additional revenue for the federal government over the ensuing decade. So this is this is real money, right? Just to put things in context, every one point increase in the corporate tax rate nets the federal government about a hundred billion dollars of revenue over the ensuing decade. So this information reporting piece of enforcement, um, you know, is worth between two and three points on the corporate rate, just to kind of give you a sense of uh, scale. 
The other piece, oh, and then the most, maybe the last thought on this information reporting is this is real revenue in the sense that you get credit on the official score sheet for this revenue. The Joint Tax Committee, the official scorekeeper for tax policy on Capitol Hill, they will give you credit for additional revenue uh, from information reporting. The other piece of enforcement is we're just giving more money to the enforcers, like give the IRS more money and with more money and more resources, they'll hire more auditors and more agents and they'll just track stuff down. Um, and the thinking here is, and, and the proposal really, is to give the IRS an additional $80 billion um, over the ensuing decade that, that will in turn result, this is the estimate, in an, an additional $320 billion of revenue collected. You net the 80 that you spent to get it, and you get another $240 billion of additional revenue. Again, real money, like two, two and a half points on the corporate rate. The challenge on IRS funding is the Joint Tax Committee will not give you credit for those dollars. So this is not official money. This is sort of what I call a moral offset. So elected officials believe it. They have some basis for believing it, but they won't get official credit for it on the score sheet. And so this is one where you could you know, envision. So going back to the, remember the tax committees have to pay for their own freight. They got to pay for their own freight with real scorable offsets. So giving more money to the IRS doesn't count. It is not good for purposes of counting whether or not the tax committees have fully paid for all of their work. But it does allow you to sort of say to say that you're paying for some non-tax committee spending. You know, the official score sheet will show a $250 billion increase in the deficit. But an elected official can say, but no, I've got this IRS money in here and I know that that's going to result in additional revenue collected for the federal government. So the official piece of paper says deficit increase of $250 billion. But I, in my heart of hearts, Senator Manchin, Senator Cinema, whoever this is, I know that that's really not going to be the case. It's just that the model doesn't give me credit for the policy choices I'm making. So I don't want to guess too far off track, but I have to ask this question. Why does it not count? Because when you were running through those numbers, and I know, you know, especially the information reporting, there's a lot of pros and cons to that, but you just funded half your trillion dollars by these two actions. Yes. So why don't they count the enforcement, even at least net of the funding that they got? So it's because the model assumes that in, in a world of constrained resources, the IRS and all government agencies are using those dollars to maximum efficiency, right? And so they say, if you give them more dollars, they will use it for slightly less efficient things because they, if it was a more efficient thing, they would be doing it all right, this is just a, you know, it's a model, right? It makes some assumptions. All models have some flaws and there's a balance between simplicity and, you know, accuracy. And so these are the choices that they've made. Um, and this is one where I think most elected officials, including a lot of Republicans, would actually say, yeah, I know the model doesn't give you credit for it, but I'd be willing to go with that too. And indeed, Republicans were considering using this in the infrastructure bill. Um, that infrastructure bill was bipartisan. It got, you know, 68 votes right. in the Senate. And, you know, they say that it was fully paid for. It wasn't really fully paid for, but, you know, that, that they sort of tried to cobble together some offsets to pay for it. One of the big offsets that dropped out at the end was this additional money for the IRS. So even Republicans were willing to consider this. And actually, it only dropped out at the end because of the leaks of the IRS data, the ProPublica publication, which uh, caused Republicans to sort of get very nervous about giving the IRS more money because 
more money means more information. And it looks like the IRS is not doing a, is not covering itself in glory and, and protecting the information that it already has. And so uh, the irony of it is, I suspect that whoever leaked that information, was, I don't know if it was leaked or hacked, we still don't know. But however that information was released, it was released with an idea towards, hey, look at all this bad stuff that's happening. You should give the IRS more money to track it down. And it exactly backfired, mm-hmm. right? It took what was a bipartisan issue and turned it into a partisan issue. Now, I think the IRS will eventually get its money because of this reconciliation bill. But if, it, if, if this reconciliation bill falls apart, and there's a probably one in four chance that it does, then the IRS will get no additional funding when it could have had it in the infrastructure bill if that leak hadn't happened at the time at which it happened. So then, Rohit, let's move on to another question, sort of recent events, which was the OECD minimum tax that I think passed, was agreed a few days ago, um, I think on the 8th. Does that factor in here at all or not really because the rate's lower than our rate and it really shouldn't have an impact? It does factor in. Um, and the OECD agreement has sort of two components, so, and they call them pillar one and pillar two. Pillar one is less well-developed, and this is the in the area of these digital services taxes where foreign governments were sort of pretty nakedly targeting U.S.-headquartered multinationals for additional tax collection. And so this is, you know, this is on a little bit of a slower boat, and maybe they'll resolve it at some point next year. And there's a lot of question about whether the U.S. would ever adopt the legislation necessary to implement Pillar one because it would require the U.S. to give taxing rights away from itself to a bunch of you know, Western European countries. And that looks a lot like a first world foreign aid program. And that's not going to be super popular on Capitol Hill. And I have yet to hear a compelling theory of how you get 60 or even 67 if a treaty is required. And I happen to believe a treaty is required. But even if it's not, you would still need 60 votes in the Senate. And I don't know that I could find 50 votes um, for this thing. So that's pillar one. So that's kind of on its a little bit on its own. Pillar two is this minimum tax proposal. And the agreement um, reached at the OECD on Friday of last week, was that broad strokes that countries would agree to adopt a minimum tax regime at 15%. So, you know, every company would have to pay minimum 15% in each country in which it is doing business. Now, this gets really tricky because, you know, you might pay a lot of tax in one year, but very little tax in the next year. And that might be because you had losses um, or you had in-country timing differences like depreciation deductions or, you know, R&D credits or things like that. So the details of this are still yet substantially be worked out. But notionally, sort of three main features, a 15% rate measured in each country um, and with pretty generous uh, carve-outs for real substance-based activity in the country. Because this is largely designed to get at the the thought of profit shifting and moving intellectual property into a low-tax jurisdiction, but you don't have anything real there. It's not designed to get at like the person that's operating in a hotel in a low tax jurisdiction. That hotel is not there for tax reasons. That hotel is there because if you want people to visit, you need to have a hotel in the place that they're visiting. Right. So those are the three main features. And it does implicate what's happening here because one of the potentially significant sources of revenue for the reconciliation bill is to fairly dramatically increase the tax burden on the overseas income of U.S. headquartered multinationals in a way that is thematically consistent with this minimum tax proposal. But in, in the details quite more onerous. And so now that this agreement has been sort of notionally reached, it, it does two things. One, it puts some downward pressure on how high the U.S. minimum tax rate can go. The administration had been proposing a minimum tax rate that would have effectively been, you know, like in the 26-ish kind of range, right? So now, like we know the rest of the world is going to be no higher than 15. So it's hard to argue that the U.S. 
should take its rate above 15. By the way, under the current rules, the U.S. rate is actually effectively already over 15 because of some complicated expense allocation rules that the Treasury Department interposed. But you could clean that up and, you know, get a real 15 rate. And that wouldn't be too complicated to do and, you know, would maybe raise a little bit more revenue depending on how you do it. The other sort of challenge, though, is the OECD is just a standard setting body, right? The OECD does not have an army. It cannot impose this agreement on the several member countries. They will have to do that each on their own, on their individual timelines. And it is, you know, conservatively two to three years away before you have sort of broad adoption of these rules. You know, some countries might do it next year, other countries two years from now, other countries later, some we worry never. I I will tell you there was a lot of attention on Capitol Hill being paid to China. There has been for a while. There continues to be. Recently, the U.S. trade representative uh, noted that China had not lived up to its um, sort of phase one trade obligations negotiated under the Trump administration. And so I think you have a lot of elected officials saying, hmm, well, here's a country that says they're going to do this, but I want to make sure that they actually do it before I believe it. Um, So where where it kind of gets intertwined with what's happening on Capitol Hill now is, You've got members saying, well, this is fine for what it is, but I don't know that we ought to be racing ahead and enacting something in the fourth quarter of 2021 and then put our companies at a significant competitive disadvantage, at least for the next couple of years. And then depending on what they other countries actually do, perhaps forever, right? It is entirely possible that all of these detailed sort of how do you deal with timing differences, depreciation deductions, and you know, in any given year that will in one year make you look like a low, low rate paying taxpayer, but then that'll rebound two, three years from now. Um, you know, how do you work that stuff out? And the OECD hasn't figured that out. They've been working on it for two years and they still haven't figured it out. It is, uh, so goes the argument, somewhat folly to think that the U.S. Congress is going to stick the landing in the next six weeks with perfection. And if we don't, um, we put ourselves at real risk of being an outlier against the rest of the world and an outlier certainly much earlier than the rest of the world. And so this is causing a lot of friction on Capitol Hill, because, you know, elected officials worry a lot about the competitiveness of U.S. headquartered multinationals. They employ a lot of workers. They pay high wages. Growth in overseas market is tied directly to growth of domestic employment, right? You need people here to manage the overseas operations. So this is picking up some steam. There was actually a letter released, was in the press this morning, it was sent Friday from another three House Democrats saying, hey, maybe we should slow up on this. And remember, Now, Speaker Pelosi is working with a three-vote margin in the House. So three is, she can lose three and still prevail. Um, But by my count, there are now maybe 11 or 12 House Democrats who in one form or another have written letters saying, huh, this international stuff, I'm not convinced, or I'm not convinced that we should do it right now. Maybe we do it, you know, a couple of years from now, once we see what the rest of the world has actually done. So again, you have a chicken and egg problem because Secretary Yellen will tell you, if the U.S. doesn't lead, no one will follow. And you got lawmakers in the U.S. saying, even if we lead, I'm not convinced anybody's going to follow. And I don't like that. Well, maybe we don't have to lead quite so quickly. So let me clarify, though, Rohit, what you said. So this has the potential that then there wouldn't be any change in the corporate tax rate, potentially, while they kind of wait and see, or not exactly? No, no. So the corporate rate, the domestic corporate rate is traveling in a slightly different lane. I, I'm, what I'm saying is there's I'm not sure that I believe that there will be no changes on the international rate or that the guilty, the minimum tax rate isn't going up a little bit. What I am saying is it looks increasingly like certainly the administration's proposal, that's completely out of bounds. The House Ways and Means proposal that was released a couple of weeks ago, that would take the minimum tax rate to effectively 17.4%. 
even that seems a little out of bounds if the rest of the world's going to be at 15, but it's at least headed in the right direction. So I could see that number coming down closer to a real 15% rate. Some of the more complicated features, like whether you measure this overall as we do now or measure it country by country, that I could potentially see be putting on pause, um, either not doing it at all right now and waiting to see what the rest of the world does, or maybe writing it, but saying we will trigger this based on broad adoption by the rest of the OECD or some percentage of the OECD plus China, because China looms large in the domestic political uh, context, you know, or something along those lines. The headline corporate rate, you know, the current 21% rate used to be 35. That, I mean, there is some interaction between that and the minimum tax rate, just because of the way the statute was drafted. But most members think of it as a sort of intellectually separate conversation. And right now, the absolute maximum that you can envision the rate going to, the headline corporate rate is 25, up from 21. Even that probably now feels a little too high to me, only because while Senator Manchin, right, has said he'd be comfortable with a 25% rate, um, the fact that Senator Cinema has been ruthlessly quiet on this point has always left me with a little bit of just a suspicion or a spidey sense that she wasn't comfortable with a 25% rate. Because frankly, if she was, it'd be, it would have been very easy for her to say, yeah, I'm with Joe mm-hmm. on that one. And, and, you know, and it's his fault that it's not 28. He's the one that said 25 and you're upset about that. Go talk to him. Yes. Go chase him. Into a, yeah. Go, right. Go chase right. Him Don't let me, me be the quote lead here. So I'm not going to be the face of this. I'm going to be the face of some other stuff. So the fact that she, this is like the Sherlock Holmes, the dog that didn't bark. Um, the fact that she hasn't said anything about it has always made me wonder. And now increasingly it's, it feels like she's not comfortable with 25. I don't know whether her number, and I'm not sure anybody knows right now, whether her number is 21, where we are today, or maybe 23 or 24, but even 25, you know, I'm starting to think if I were to run a thousand simulations through the model that I, I guess is in my head, I might tell you the plurality outcome is 25, but it's not the majority outcome. The, you know, the results at 23 and 24 combined are probably more likely than 25. So if I had to pick a number, I might pick 25, but I don't have a huge confidence level um, that it'll be that high. I have a high confidence level. It won't be higher than 25, but 23, 24 wouldn't surprise me at this point. So Rohit, if I'm a CFO, what would you focus on right now? Because the question I keep asking my tax colleagues there's so many moving parts and real dollar impacts to companies, depending where these things land, everything from the incentive side of things that, you know, we briefly touched on to where these rates land, what happens with the, you know, guilty and other things. So for you, especially if you were talking to a CFO that is not focused on this full time, what pieces would you kind of keep your eye on? So I kind of keep my eye on maybe um, three things. Um, One is obviously the headline corporate rate and focusing on that conversation and paying attention to kind of how that lands. Two is, you know, especially if you're a multinational with substantial overseas income or overseas competition, um, you got to really pay attention to, you know, over the course of the next couple of weeks, as these OECD agreements are announced and there's the G20 meeting this week, I do expect that some of the more skeptical countries will start to give voice. This is often the way it is. Everyone comes together, holds hands, sings kumbaya. Rah, rah. Right? And then like yeah. in the weeks later, people are like, oh, but wait, I have this other thing that I meant. I, did I fail mm-hmm. to mention that I need this other thing as a part of the deal? That always happens in the couple weeks after. So this will be the high point of uh, consensus. And then over the next couple weeks, we'll see how much consensus is there really and how does Congress react to that. The other thing that I had previously been downplaying, but I, I feel like I have to bring to people's attention is as there is concern that Senator Manchin or Senator Cinema won't go as high as 
the, you know, other Democrats want to go on raising corporate individual rates. There has become a renewed effort to breathe life into an administration proposal to impose a tax based on book income as opposed to taxable income, right? And this is designed to get at the episodic story of the 50 to 100, whatever the number is in any given year, companies that had lots of financial statement income, but little or no federal taxable income. Not for any nefarious reason. They just had a lot of depreciation deductions or a lot of stock options being exercised or NOLs. And there's all sorts of reasons why there are differences between book and tax income, legitimate, you know, real reasons, which of course most members don't understand. And but we know that both Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema have said, you know, if you want to pick a policy or design a policy to get at that problem, I would be comfortable with that. Right. Now, you know, whether that yields a tax on book income remains to be seen, but there is a there is a now renewed effort to do this. I've always been skeptical of this because it, it in part allows would allows would require Congress to outsource the definition of the tax base from itself to FASB. And I continue to believe that out of 535 members on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. no less than 10, no more than 10, know who FASB is and probably less than 10 know where they live. So my thinking has been, look, I mean, I think you have to pay attention to this because, you know, they're, they're talking more seriously about it than they have been in any sort of recent period of time. I still, in my heart of heart, believes that we're not going to end up with a tax on book income, but what it might yield is a resurrection of the old corporate alternative minimum tax that was in the law before 2017, which appealed as a part of the 2017 statute. To my mind, it would scratch the political itch of being able to say every company has to pay a minimum amount of tax. Um, you'd want to pay very close attention to how they design that. Do they just resurrect the old one? Right? If they resurrect the old one, you probably have a pretty good intuitive sense of whether you care about that or not. But there's no rule that says Congress has to resurrect it as originally constructed. They will, of course, monkey with the preferences as they inevitably do. And how they do that could have cash tax consequences. It it will still, at the end of the day, probably be a timing difference. So it should not, in the ordinary course, have a financial statement impact, but it may have, um, perhaps, depending on your facts and circumstances, you know, pretty severe cash tax implications. And, you know, cash does matter at the end of the day. And, you know, well, especially when you're paying tax. So especially when you're paying tax and, you know, as you're heading in or out of a pandemic, you start to be really concerned about um, cash, right? We saw that heading into the pandemic. Cash was king. Um, so that's something that, you know, three months ago, I would have said, eh, this is not a, this is not a smart idea and it's not going anywhere. Turns out, and I should have known this, just because it's not a smart idea doesn't mean Congress isn't going to give it a serious look. Yeah. So Rohit, this seems more like an education problem than a, like, quote, real problem from the point of view. Someone who understands the issue would say, okay, well, there is logical reasons, as you said. So is this a case where I always like to listen and think, you know, if I'm a listener, what could I do that companies should be trying to educate their representatives? Yeah, absolutely. What should, or what no, could one where some education would go a long way and, you know, and say, look, this, this is how these results happen. They happen because we invested a lot in R and D or we have, you know, we were um, supporting a lot of green energy projects and that created a lot of you know, renewable energy incentives. And you either like those incentives or you don't, but if you like them, then you ought to keep them. And if you don't like them, then you ought to repeal them. Now, we know the answer to that question because Congress is a part of this reconciliation bill is about to dramatically expand the scope and scale and duration of these clean energy incentives. So we know that Congress isn't hostile. At least Democrats in Congress aren't hostile to these things. So I think educating, like, this is just a backdoor way to repeal these things. Now, at some level, the administration has acknowledged this. And their revised version of the proposal, they've exempted out 
so-called general business credits, which covers everything from renewable energy to low-income housing and things like that. But they're still, um, as constructed, they'd still be whacking depreciation. They'd still be, um, this would be a pretty bad result for insurance companies who have their own set of sort of unique um, tax rules. Um, and so, you know, I, I fully expect that if, if this actually does pick up steam, you know, people who care about expensing and depreciation, and, and to be clear, there is support for those policies on both sides of the aisle. Economists in particular, left, right, center of all uh, stripes, um, think that full expensing is a preferred economic policy because it incents new investment, making workers newly productive, which then has a salutary effect um, on their wages. Um, so expensing is on pretty firm footing from a sort of economic and political uh, range. But at the moment, it's still caught up in the most recent version of the administration's proposal. Um, the other piece, and this is one that I think is a little just politically trickier, is one of the ways, it's not the only way, but contributing substantially to the facts of the various companies who have this profile is they use um, stock options as a broad tool of compensation. And when the stock is performing well, and employees are exercising their options, it gives rise to a big deduction, right? And it can, you know, substantially reduce, if not zero out, tax liability. And that, you know, that's the one piece that I think Congress feels a little iffy about. Um, the problem, of course, is there's no argument that stock options aren't being properly taxed, right? It's a deduction for the for the company, but it's income to the employee, right? And so the company is getting a deduction at currently 21%. That's the corporate tax rate. The employee, I'm just guessing here, if you're an employee exercising stock options, you're probably not in a, you're probably in a higher than 21% individual tax bracket. So this income is being taxed more heavily on the individual side than if you were just denying the deduction, you know, on the corporate side. So there's no argument here that it's not being taxed correctly. It's, it's a political problem. It's not being taxed on the right return, right? It's showing up on the individual return, not the corporate return. And then you end up with these stories. Um, that are not entirely accurate because they're based off financial statements. These these are not entities that have access to corporate tax returns. They're making an assumption about corporate taxes um, that may not always be correct. In fact, often isn't. But, you know, when you're explaining, you're losing. Um, so this is an issue of education for sure. Um, and that's to me, and I sort of have faith in listeners and businesses and our clients that they will engage in the education effort. And I think at the end of the day, Congress, I sort of have to believe Congress will realize mm, this is not a great policy choice. We have a political problem here. There is a other political solution, an old school corporate alternative minimum tax that will scratch the political itch without introducing all of these other uh, distortions into the system that we really don't want or need. So Rohit, this is incredibly complex set of issues. And it's not like this is the only thing Congress is thinking about working on you know, talking about. So let's go back to our timeline and maybe we can wrap up sort of thinking timeline. If we look from now to the end of 2021, so two and a half months-ish, your best prediction of what's going to happen, understanding there's all these issues out there from a timeline point of view, when can we start to really see the direction this is going to go? So I think the the sort of the big window here is between um, October 31st and Thanksgiving. Like that three-week stretch will tell us a lot about whether the majority is going to be able to stick the landing on this exercise. And to my mind, at least one chamber, probably the House, the House will go first here, needs to have passed a bill by Thanksgiving. If they haven't, if, you know, this process really started fulsomely in mid-September, 
if by mid-November they are still uh, sort of casting about uh, for consensus, then I start to think, you know, there just may not be a consensus available here. Or if there is, it is dramatically smaller than we had otherwise um, envisioned. So that, you know, to me, Thanksgiving is kind of a really important deadline, not for bill being signed into law, but for one chamber having gotten far enough down the pipeline that they can pass a bill. And once that happens, especially if they've done a lot of pre-negotiation as they claim that they're doing, then you start to think, okay, you know, the Senate will make some changes, but they're not going to be dramatic changes. And they've got a window between Thanksgiving and Christmas to get it done. And it can be done. But I think if we wake up from our turkey-induced nap and they still haven't passed a bill in either chamber, then the odds of failure go significantly up. Right. So I guess then from to some extent that comes to question, if it starts to get close, are they going to think something is better than nothing, right? Are they going to hold out for the big number or are they going to say, okay, let's go for the smaller amount, which is better than nothing? Heather, this is like the several trillion dollar question in my mind. Right. Will progressive Democrats say, you know, even if it's only a trillion dollars, that beats a sharp stick in the eye? Or do they behave like Tea Party Republicans did in 2011 and 2012 and say, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to take nothing of what you're what you're offering, not because something is not better than nothing. The argument will be and this is the argument that they will make. This is so small. um, It's not worth doing. It will take a lot of the wind out of the sails. I will say no to this and I will get a better result eventually. Now, eventually, I mean, who knows? Eventually, 2022, maybe, maybe not. I think the argument will be, we're going to go out, we're going to take this issue to the voters, and we're going to elect more better Democrats, right? Ones that agree with me, not ones that disagree with me. And in 2023, we're going to have a bigger majority in the House and a bigger majority in the Senate. And by God, we're going to get a $3.5 trillion bill, the one I really wanted. Now, you know, maybe, right? But this is the sort of the fiction that people at political extremes tell themselves when they're voting against something that they know in their heart of their hearts they probably should be voting against. Mm-hmm. So, But we'll have to see where progressives land on that question. I had not believed that they really had it within themselves to you know, sacrifice the hostage, but they actually credibly threatened the infrastructure bill to the point that the president came up and backed off his demand that it passed by September 30th. They would not have done that. I mean, they needed that political win at the end of September just as badly as they need it now. They would not have done that if they hadn't decided they didn't have the votes, that the progressives meant it when they said they were going to take down the infrastructure bill. And there's nothing in the infrastructure bill progressives dislike. It's just not enough. So this is uh, this is why, you know, I think the odds of failure here are maybe one in four, whereas six weeks ago, I would have told you, I think they got a 90% chance of getting this thing across the finish line. That number has come down because the behavior of the progressives, you know, brings into the real world the possibility that they will take nothing over the something that's politically available. So Rohit, it's always quite interesting and sounds like I'm going to need to have you back just so we can see how your predictions did. And then definitely seems like it's going to be an interesting 2022. So thanks as always for all your insight. That does it for our current events coverage. Five weeks with five different stories. If you missed any of the episodes, you can find the full series library at viewpoint.pwc.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next week, we have another great lineup of shows for you. On Tuesday, it's a special episode on the FASB's and ISB's agenda consultation comment letters. And Thursday, we're kicking off a new series on ESG, a series that will tell you everything you need to know on ESG reporting. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And to stay up to date on all of our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. And of course, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.